and welcome to Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and this is Series 2, Episode 1. So we've been off for a few weeks, it's really lovely to be back and getting these fired up again. I really wanted to get this going for the start of September and I just don't know where September's gone in all honesty, it's been a really, really busy time. Uh, lots going on at home for me, uh, which I won't bore you with, uh, but also lots of you know keynotes and uh, a few bits of client work, a few meetings and stuff, and um, just getting ready for this big trip. So I'm doing this big trip to New Zealand and Australia um, for basically the entire month of November, uh, doing some book promo over there and some workshops and stuff. Uh, so getting ready for that, and just in all of that uh, kerfuffle and whirlwind of September, uh, I've neglected to, to restart Beyond Busy, but we are back and we will be with you every two weeks on a Thursday with a new podcast. And uh, if you've not heard this before, so there's a little thing at the very beginning of series one, which you can go back and listen to, which basically explains the whole format and what I'm trying to do with this stuff. So the idea basically is it's going to be long form conversations with someone who has an interesting take on work-life balance, on productivity, and on happiness and success. And what I'm really interested in is exploring some of the the interconnectedness, the tensions between those three themes. Uh, so for example, you know, you can be really productive, but if you haven't really defined why and what your happiness and success is all about, uh, then isn't it just that you go faster and faster on the hamster wheel? Um, is it that you neglect home life and work-life balance and all that sort of stuff, you know? So really, um, the aim of this is to just explore those those tensions and uh, just the relationship between those three themes. And I'm hoping that that is just interesting in and of itself. I've had loads of really nice emails of people just saying that they heard like one little bit from one of the interviews and it just inspired them to go do something. So the idea is just to kind of uh, sit in in interesting rooms with interesting people and, you know, just be a fly on the wall uh, as, you know, for you as, as the listener to this. And hopefully just by being a fly on the wall, you'll get some kind of just inspiration or something that you can uh, take away and uh, start to uh, just look at your own situation in a different perspective. I'm certainly finding that every time I do one of these interviews, it's kind of, it's actually making me uh, uh, more and more confused about what the Beyond Busy book is going to be all about because I'm just kind of, you know, just picking up all these uh, different questions where, where I was looking for answers. Uh, and so the second part of this, um, as I just mentioned, is the book. Uh, the book is going to be also called Beyond Busy. And uh, the idea is just to sort of open up the lid a little bit so you can see a little bit behind the scenes of what it's like to write a book. And, uh, well, it's actually been fairly typical of most books so far in that I had an original writing schedule and I had an original deadline agreed with the publishers. And I have now gone back and said to them, that's ridiculous, I need more time for this. So that's probably how most books go, isn't it, really? Uh, but yeah, so it, I will, throughout the series, just um, tell you a little bit about where my thinking's at with the book. Uh, but suffice to say, at the moment, my plan is to just, just to put loads more of these out and to really focus on the, the staying curious phase of the book process. So before I start committing too much stuff to the page, you know, really just kind of keeping in that exploratory mode and interviewing lots of interesting people. Uh, which brings me on very neatly to Norman Baker. So uh, Norman has uh, spent really much of the last two decades on the, the front line of, of British politics. So uh, he was a minister in the coalition government. Uh, he won his uh, Lib Dem seat in Lewis uh, from the Tories and the Tories had 
held that seat for well over 100 years. So um, real kind of um, firebrand, uh, very uh, interesting guy, uh, has been described as a maverick and various other things. Um, he was a minister in uh, the Home Office, which was then run by Theresa May. So there's a little bit of a, a topical uh, slant to that. And has also really been on the forefront of some very big influential debates. So very, very vocal on issues of the Iraq war. Uh, in fact, he wrote a book uh, called The Strange Death of David Kelly, uh, which is very controversial. And also uh, probably did more than, than uh, pretty much anyone to expose the MP's expenses scandal, if you remember that. So, you know, big theme, as you'll hear through this, is him uh, really being a thorn in the side of the establishment and really trying to make... Uh, you know, trying to do the best for his constituents and for uh, for public life in general, but actually making enemies of some very powerful people and very powerful institutions along the way. Uh, so we talk here about stress, about him being very thick-skinned uh, and his thoughts on just how he got things done along the way. Um, so I think you'll like this one anyway. There's some really, really good stuff in it. But if you're a politics geek like me, uh, then you are really in for a treat. So um uh, let's uh, go straight over to Norman. So I met Norman in Lewis, uh, just down the road from Brighton, so a short train ride for me. And uh, Lewis is a small town, it's where he uh, lives, it's where he was also an MP. And just to paint you a picture, uh, we're in a little shed in the corner of the back garden of Laporte's Cafe. So if you know Lewis, you'll probably know where Laporte's Cafe is. And uh, you might hear a little bit of chinking in the background, uh, chinking of china and plates and stuff. Uh, so this is Norman getting his lunch served and me getting my uh, my cup of tea delivered and all that sort of thing. Uh, so you hear a bit of that in the background, a bit of chatter of people. And uh, what's happening at the start here is Norman's just setting the scene on where we are uh, for our interview. So over to Norman Baker. It's lovely to be in Lewis. I've just got off the train from... From Brighton, it always feels like I'm in a slightly different world when I come to Lewis. You are. Lewis is a very civilized place. Yeah. Similar to the universe. And the... Uh, Brighton's an upstart place. <laughs> <laughs> and the rolling hills, and it just has a really lovely atmosphere to this. Lewis, Lewis is the first place south of London, which is not London in my view. Here <laughs> was Heath and so on, they're all kind of suburbs of London, really, in terms yeah. of commuter land. This is very different. And Lewis has its own, definitely its own identity and, you know, very sort of strong. Local it does. It identity. punches above its weight, and it's um, got is home to all sorts of interesting people. Cool. And we're in the chic shed. Um, tell me about this. We're in this great shed. We're in a little cafe um, called the Ports in uh, Lansdowne Place. And what I like about Lewis is a huge number of businesses are independent, so we don't have very many chains. And those we do have, people don't like very much. <laughs> uh, they like their independent shops. So this is quirky Lewis, and it's a pity it's it's. Uh, sound only this because it's a great picture. We're sitting in this little shed uh, which has got a couple of different tables. It's got a candelabra on the table for some reason which has got no candles in it. <laughs> it's got kind of odd, odd, odd kind of washing bowls from, from it would have been in bad bedrooms in Victorian times. Chairs sitting there stuffed with plastic bags around them um, and uh, you know all sorts of junk really in the car. An old telephone. Who knows why it's all here but um, <laughs> well, it's great. One of my favourite places in Lewis is that uh, the, the flea market. Yes. Uh, with the pink front and just, it's always full of just weird little old crates and fun. It's just a lovely place to just walk around on a Sunday afternoon yeah. and buy stuff from. And this kind of has that same kind of feel of like interesting antique stuff. Um, so um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was uh, just the notion of being busy and the notion of work-life balance around being an MP and a minister. 
um, and you're famous uh, for many things, one of which was David Cameron calling you the most annoying man in Parliament. Um, how did you feel about that? I thought it was great. I thought it was great, and I made sure it went into my election material. Um, <laughs> Is that right? It's, it's, um, well, I mean, it, why, why did he say that? He said it because I'm effective. I was effective and uh, annoyed him by being effective. Uh, and in particular, he's got a long memory and he bears grudges, David Cameron. Mm. So this goes back partly, I think, to opposition days when he was leader of the opposition and I reported him for using his parliamentary office to raise funds for the Tory party. And he was found against by the Committee on Standards, had to apologise to the House, which is right. fairly embarrassing for the leader of the opposition. So I think he bore that as a grudge. And in about 2013 or whatever it was, he did a, he did a, a, a talk to... Um, the press gallery, press gallery lunch in the House of Commons. And uh, I think it was the end of the year because he was asked what his ambitions were for the following year and he said one of them was to see less of me on television. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think, so on that, so the, the whole um, sort of business people paying cash for access to party leaders and stuff, was he doing more of that? Because this was like, was it the Leaders Club or something it was called? Yes, like, it was. And, you know, I mean, look, all, all party leaders will try to in a sense, sell access to themselves, yeah. whether they call it that or something else, so that's what they do. The difference was he was using parliamentary offices, right. which are paid for by the taxpayer for parliamentary purposes, and it wasn't a parliamentary purpose, it was a Tory party purpose. Yeah. And you, know, you have to have these clear lines. Yeah, and that was a theme actually, so um, uh, just reading your book, um, so Against the Grain, and uh, one of the quotes on the back describes, describes you as a maverick, so that was immediately for me, man after my own heart. Um, but there's a lot of stuff in your book where you seem to talk a lot about, and a big theme of a lot of the um, things that you did was about those boundaries and around tr transparency. There's a thing about, um, with, on Lewis Council about getting people to uh, declare whether they were members of the Freemasonry yes. organization, right? So, and you can maybe tell that story, but it kind of feels like just that sense of sort of public funds being spent well, spent well, public duty, and the boundaries around influence around decision making is a big theme for you and a big sort of part of your values. Absolutely, freedom of information is um, an absolute key in my view to good government. If you can find out what, what people are doing in your name, then it means that they will think twice before they abuse their position. Mm -hmm. They're going to be found out. Yeah. Um, and that's why freedom of information is so important and why actually um, the MPG Spencer thing, which had to come out from that, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, means that um, although MPs' reputation went down uh, as a consequence of that, um, in future, those abuses will not occur in the same way. Um, just taking my apple and ginger drink. <laughs> um, my regular tea. So um, that's why it's very important, and it's why I've um, continually resented any attempt to keep things secret, which should be public, including, for example, at the moment, the royal family, who are largely exempt from freedom of information. Yeah. And they shouldn't be. Yeah. I mean, they should be for their personal lives, but not when they're carrying out public duties. So that battle is not yet completely won. Uh, Tony Blair, of course, famously said that freedom of information was the worst thing he ever did, which, to my mind, is a reason why it needs to be done. Yeah, that's um, going to be my next question. So, it, with Tony Blair, is is the only, does he have a, is there a sort of values-led uh, opposition or regret around that, or is it just because actually this just makes my life more difficult trying to, you know, have people expose me for I things think, the whole time? I think he he um, 
he wasn't actually ultimately very democratic in nature. I think he mm. thought that he, his idea of democracy was he was elected into something and then carried it out without proper scrutiny for a number of years and then faced election in five years on or whatever. That's not my view of democracy. My view of democracy is, is continual involvement with the population and, and a mature population which is able to, to influence the government on a day-to-day -day, day -day basis. The Freemason thing, of course, was, was an example of both importance of freedom of information but also about my other um, desire to have fun in the job because you know, it's not all hard work, it needs to be fun as well. And the thing about the Freemasons uh, was that it seemed to me that there was an issue about if people are in a cabal of some sort behind the scenes and operating in a way that you don't know about, then that can influence public policy. And I didn't want to stop them being Freemasons. If they want to you know, wander around rolling up their trouser legs, that's up to them. But what, <laughs> but what, they, what they should do is tell us who they all are so mm. that we could judge whether or not uh, their actions were driven by their membership of that particular organisation. That was all, really. Um, and, of course, uh, I then tabled a motion to the council back in 88 or something which called for all those councillors who were Freemasons to declare themselves. And of course, the Tories were, who were running the council were furious at this and wanted to vote it down. But they were advised by the chief executive. Uh, they could, of course, vote it down, but they would have to declare an interest for that particular item on the agenda. <laughs> so they had, to, they had to all declare themselves out. They had to all out themselves as part of the agenda item, which they all did one by one quite dramatically. And then, of course, they voted it down. But by that point, and we it, knew who they all were. And of course, like the, the Freemasons, Freemasons is notoriously secretive so could some of them have just not declared an interest and relied on the secret or like would how would that have been found out would someone have outed well i suppose them? i suppose it could have um, i suppose it could have been dishonest and, and not declared it uh, they were advised by the chief executive to declare the interest right um and therefore they'd have, they'd have gone against his advice and been in contempt of um local government right. standards so it's just not so as simple as trying to be dishonest and and get away with it. Well, could they got away with it? Maybe if, they could have done. Yeah. Maybe maybe somebody did. I don't know. So, first um, of May, nineteen ninety seven was when you became an MP. Yeah. And you were a councillor uh, before that as well. So, what did life look like in the the months before? Because I know I was going to say the day before first of May, nineteen ninety seven. But I can quite imagine what the years, day before the years it was before. campaigning. But in the time before you were an MP, um, just describe really briefly. You know, what did life look like for you? What what was your what was your career? What was uh, what was going on in your world? You have to, if you're going to win a seat, especially as a Lib Dem, you have to have three things going for you. You have to have a base Lib Dem vote in the area you're standing for. You have to have a tactical vote of people who don't want the other challenger, in this case the Tories, so Labour and Green voters have to vote for you. And thirdly, you need a personal vote. And in order to get those things working, um, there is a huge amount of work to do and people have got no idea how much work you have to put in in order to try to win a seat like Lewis, which had been Tory for 123 years before yeah. I won it. And um, you know, that meant that I was teaching for about, um, I think, 10 hours a week. I was running the council, which was um, not well paid at all, about £3,000 a year or something pathetic, or £4,000 a year. And I was spending the rest of the time trying to win the seat, organising people, going knocking on doors, drafting leaflets, all those sorts of things, on, on a budget of close to zero. Yeah. And uh, it was a huge amount of work. And lots of people who stood for the Lib Dems in particular, maybe the same with Tory and Labour in certain seats, um, never get elected. And they end up you know, having to write off as a bad experience. 
I spent five years, uh, well I stood in 92 and got hammered, so I'd actually spent close to eight years trying to get elected and I couldn't have done it anymore because I was on the breadline, you know, I was only next to nothing. Um, you know, my house needed sorting out and there was no money to do it and all that right. sort of thing and just, it was impossible. Because so. being a councillor is a, it's a, it's a quite a misunderstood profession, isn't it, in a, in a sense, because um, is it still the case now that as a councillor you, you basically get a, a sort of expense allowance? They get it's more really now. It's not like a salary, is it? Or? They get, well, it's not a salary, it's, it's, but you get more now. I mean, you can, if you're a leader of the council now, you've got more chance of surviving right. financially than you did in my day. Um, it has changed, and quite rightly so. But, but still, um, the ethos of it is it's like a, it's a kind of volunteer yeah. position rather than a profession in that sense of... It is, but your council you know, allowance is counter for tax purposes and so on, so you could yeah. actually end up worse off as a council than if you didn't work. Um, <laughs> so it's not great. But anyway, I mean, that was my experience, and I couldn't have fought the election again had I not won in 97. Yeah. I just couldn't have done it. Yeah. And were you, did you have a sense in 97 of like, financially that's a thing, but also I've just put so much energy into this that if I don't win this time, that'll be it. Like I, you know, could, could you have stomached the sort of motivation and, and resilience to then stand again if, if money wasn't a Well, it wasn't so much energy. It was, it was first of all, um, the party would have had to have agreed for me to stand again. And there were people in the party, and I go into this in my book, who didn't like my style. Uh, I was far too upfront and in your face for some people and in the party. Um, they thought I was rather, uh, I suppose, uncouth or crude by the way I was mm. approaching things. You know, I was always in the paper, I was in the front page every week, I was doing this, doing that, and they thought that was rather bad form. And I said, well, you know, <laughs> you know if you want to get me elected, this yeah. is what you do. It's not an ego trip, which they thought it was. It really wasn't. It was about saying that if you were a, if you were a washing powder, People have got to hear the product before they buy it. You know, yeah, no one buys yeah. bald automatically. They haven't heard of it. They only buy it because they've been an advert seventy-three times on television. So, it's the same with with politicians. You have to be a name. So it comes to the ballot paper. Say, oh, I've heard of him, and they vote for you. That's where you have to get to. And so you've got to be quite sort of self-promotional and upfront. Very, and, very you in know, this situation. Put yourself in. If there's a news story, find your angle and get to the front. Very. Of it. Uh, yeah. And if you're a Lib Dem, you have to do that. Now, if you're mm. a Tory in a safe seat and you take over from somebody else with a twenty thousand majority, you don't have to do that. Yeah. Ditto a Labour. But if you're a Lib Dem trying to win a seat, I guess it's lean Tory's been for twenty-three years. Of course, you have to do that. Mm. Um, so the the, the the self-promotion element was was absolutely essential. And some of my queasy colleagues didn't like it very much so I may not have got elected I may not have got selected again after 97 and I didn't want to fight with them about it so I may not have put myself forward anyway plus the fact that 97 of course was the brilliant opportunity to get elected here we had a Tory government falling to pieces uh, over Europe John Major's government deeply unpopular back to basics and all that sort of stuff and you had people in, in Lewis town particularly but Lewis constituency more widely so desperate to get rid of the Tories, that Labour and Green voters were prepared not just to vote for me, but to actually campaign for me. You know, so, and, and I was leader of the council, and all those things came together, so there's a kind of perfect mix of stuff. Yeah. And if I hadn't got elected in 1997, those circumstances wouldn't have been as favourable in, in 2001, 2002. So it wouldn't be worth trying, in my view. Mm. And how did your life change after the 1st of May 1997? Well, it changed totally, I think. I mean, it changed in the sense that um, I had an income for a start, um, <laughs> um, you know, which was which is important. I was suddenly thrust into a world which I knew about because I'd been in the research before in the House of Commons, but thrust into a world which was, um, you know, full on. 
and I went to the hammer and tongs. I had all these things I wanted to campaign on, which I frustrated me over the years. You know, why is no one doing things about Tibet? You know, why is the environment not up front? Why are these you know, things that MPs do not being exposed? You know, all these things I wanted to do. So I just went at it, you know, full pelt. And you got criticised for asking too many questions yes. in your first... Yes. Well, to be honest with you, I was... Of, of being an MP. I was, I was hugely enthusiastic and slightly indiscriminate about it. So I think to be, that was, there was an element of fairness about that criticism, I think. But what, what's wrong with being too enthusiastic, though, isn't it? Well, nothing wrong with that, but I mean, I was, I was kind of slightly unfocused and... So I in mean, terms of carving out for yourself within the party, you know, where do you sit in the party? What are your particular interests, is it, you know? I've, I've, never, I've never been, um, I've never conformed to the rules. Um, the rules say this is how you behave as an MP. Well, I'd, mm. I just did what I wanted to do, which wasn't what other MPs were doing. And therefore, there was a certain element of people who were saying, tut, tut, you know, you're not one of us. Right, okay. um, I didn't really mind that too much. And I'm being fair by saying I was slightly unfocused, but better to be unfocused than to do nothing, which is what a whole lot of MPs were doing. Mm. And some of the stuff in your book talks about how you, you obviously felt a sense of alienation or not being sort of part of that sort of club as it were like yeah. there, so was it one, one of the first things you get given as an MP is like a bit of pink ribbon or something what, yes I mean when about? you first arrive you're given a you're given a, a pink ribbon and when you when you say what's that for they say that's where you that's for you to hang your sword up right well no one's got a sword I mean you're given nothing I mean the whole thing is just a joke it's like Tom <laughs> Brown's school days it's got better to be fair yeah I mean in those days you were given that you were given a locker and a key for your locker and a pink ribbon and that's what you were given. You weren't given a telephone or an office or anything useful. Yeah. I mean the whole thing was just based in what had happened eighty five years beforehand, you know. Yeah, so there's all these kind of archaic rules and swearing allegiance to the Queen and all yes. this kind of stuff. And um, you know, in, in terms of how you felt about going in there, I mean, was there a sense of Hang on, I might get swept up in this, or I might, you know. No, I, I did, 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 so. you ever, did you ever think I'm going to become one of, you know, part of that establishment or one of these? No, I never wanted to become part of the establishment, and I always wanted to be just me. But did you ever worry that it might happen, though? You know what I mean? Um, no, I worried about um, political compromise, just because mm. you have to compromise in politics. So um, I was always wary of that and what that meant, and that required assessments on a case by case basis, really. But I never worried about not being part of the establishment. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the establishment's um, there to be attacked. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm an outsider. Yeah. Um, one of the things in your book that was uh, quite interesting, just as an experience as a reader, is there are quite a few bits you talked about. Um, you attacked Peter Mandelson quite heavily, and it led to him having to resign. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, you were instrumental in the uh, bringing about of the MPs' expenses scandal that yes. then rumbled on for another couple of years and so on. But those are things where you're really like, so you are attacking the establishment, and obviously, they're going to attack you back and yes. try and defend themselves and try and screw you over yes. and whatever. <laughs> and as a reader, as I was as I was reading some of those stories in your book, I started feeling just in my body quite stressed by that. Right? Like you know, I was kind of imagining myself in that that scenario, and the adrenaline's going a little bit, and and all that sort of thing. So, presumably, stress is something, particularly if you're going going to adopt that kind of style of attacking the establishment and trying to fight for those things that you really want. It's a fight, and that's stressful. And so, how do you deal with that stress? And 
and just tell me more about that. I'm not sure I found it stressful. I mean, I, I think I found um, stressful on occasion, I suppose, but most of the time I didn't find it stressful. Most of the time I just, you know, put my head down and got on with it. Um, Nick Clegg described me as a cross between a uh, Gandhi in a battering ram, which is quite a nice <laughs> <laughs> description. Here's, here's lunch. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Lovely. Cheers. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, so um, that was that was that was probably quite an accurate description in some way. So I did feel like that. I just I just put my head down and charged. Yeah. Um, I didn't get up. I mean, some things I find stressful in life, and some things I don't. I don't find it at all stressful to stand up in Trafalgar Square in front of ten thousand people and make a speech. Um, I find that quite exhilarating. Yeah. Other people, it's their worst nightmare. Do you find the conflict exhilarating? No, I'd rather. I, no, I don't. I don't in particular. I mean, strangely, I don't particularly like con conflict. I just want to achieve the right things. Mm. But if someone's in the way, you have to try and deal with it. <laughs> and particularly if people try and do the dirty on you, and yeah. I think, right, I'm going to try and get you. I'm not. I'm not. I don't roll over. I just say, right, and I'm, I'm going to get back at you for that. Yeah. So you know, Mandelson placed a story in the paper, the Sunday Express, about how much it was costing the taxpayer asking questions. He got team Joe's to write a story and try and damage me. So my consequence of that was just to bombard him with even more questions. So this it doesn't work. It doesn't work, doesn't work with me. You try to find something different if you want to. I mean some of those things can be games within the parliamentary system and within the political system. But I mean, you know, you talk about in your book some journalists arriving at your house trying to dig dirt on you and yeah. trying to plant stories on you. I mean this is like it's affecting your family and affecting um, your right to private space and a private life as well so I mean there's, there's a lot at stake with those things like I mean it did you ever have moments of thinking I just want an easy life for a year give me like a year off to just have a bit of a rest from this kind of stuff. No I never wanted a year off but I I came to the conclusion in the last parliament that having been a minister and then resigned it was it was probably time to to end my time in parliament at that point I had nothing else to achieve. I had been a minister. I mean, if you'd said, I think I said this in the book actually, but if someone had said to me in 87, you know, you'll become leader of the council, um, you'll win a seat, defeat the leader of the council, you then become leader of the council yourself, you become a county councillor, you'll be an MP for 18 years, you'll be a minister for four and a half as a Lib Dem or a Liberal in a hopeless seat in 87. Is that a deal? And I would say, absolutely, it's a deal. Bite your mm. hand off for it. And that's how I saw things at the end. So uh, there's no bitterness at all or unhappiness or re regret about that. And I didn't really want to stand in 2015 because I'd done what I wanted to do as much as I could do in the system as it was. Um, I was, I was arm-twisted to stand again by my local party on the basis that they would definitely lost a seat without me. So I did it, but I'd, I'd already said to them, look, if I get elected again, I'll be a good constituency MP, but I'm not going to do very much else because I want to do other things like write books and yeah. do music and so on. That's the deal. So, um, no, I, mean, I didn't want a year off, but what I did do was come to a point where I say that I think I've done what I need to do or I can do within that, within that framework, that paradigm. And um, I have to say, having, having stopped, I feel a lot better. I didn't realise I was stressed, if I was stressed, but I now feel yeah. much, much younger and fresher than I did. Mm. It's a number of hours you work. It wasn't so much the stress of the, of the decisions I was taking or the conflict. I think I was just, that was just grist in the milk. But what I think it was, was the sheer number of hours you were working. You know, you, you were having to do... Um, probably 30 hours a week as a minister. You then do probably 30 hours a week as a local MP. You have to keep your seat here and do your yeah. stuff locally. Yeah. You then got your family and bits and pieces. I've got my radio shows I've been doing. I was recording an album. You know, and all these sorts of things. And, you know, it's just you end up just 
going hell for leather, you know, all day, every day for so many hours. And it was yeah. that rather than the content of what I, what I think, just the sheer volume of work. What's um, stressful in a way. How would you describe a typical week, you know, day by day as a constituency MP? Every MP approaches their job differently, is the first thing to say. So what I did will not be the same as any other MP. I'm not saying it's better or worse, I'm just saying it's completely sure. different. What I would do, I would, I would probably go in the office first thing Monday morning, which was around the corner from my house here in Lewis, and I'd um, just pick up on old casework that was urgent and make a few phone calls, maybe clear a few press releases, um, have a chat with the office manager about what was happening that week and so on. I would probably then go to London about lunchtime on Monday. Um, and I would be in the Commons and maybe for question time, those sorts of things. I would probably have a series of meetings because I was a shadow spokesman, so uh, in opposition. So I'd be meeting um, transport people because I was a shadow transport secretary. So I'm doing stuff like that. That would take you through the evening. Um, and I'd like to eat about 7.30. If you vote at 10 o'clock and you knock off for the day about 11 o'clock. So that was a day, sort of 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. on Monday. And Tuesday, would you then stay in London or were you... Stay in London, yeah. yeah. Okay. And, um, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Tuesday and Wednesday were up in London all the time. Again, you'd have a series of meetings and parliamentary commitments and maybe speeches to make in the Commons, no questions to be tabled. There were TV and radio interviews to do, either for national stuff or indeed local stuff, which you could do from up there. Bearing in mind that keeping up high profile was very important for the party and, and indeed for me locally down here. Um, so... Um, There'd be, there'd be meetings as well about matters of interest. I mean, I suppose a good part of the time was spent on constituency business. A good part was spent on my portfolio. But then there was about 10% left over for other things which neither fitted one or the other. For example, Tibet, which I feel very strongly about. I would do stuff on Tibet. Um, and, you know, I, I then sent side external jobs, not paid, but, I mean, I, I was present, still am president of Tibet society, so there were requirement to do things for them and so on, you know, so there was that sort of uh, work to do. And then I'd come back probably Thursday lunchtime um, and between Thursday um, afternoon and Friday I'd be either in the office signing letters, um, of which there were a huge number to do, uh, speaking to caseworkers, amending what they wanted to do, um, or having meetings around the constituents, say going to see hospitals or schools or whatever it may be, anything really, opening fates or that sort of thing. Yeah. Saturday morning would be a surgery, um, invariably, um, in a different town in the constituency. And then um, I got one, I got four towns, so I did four Saturdays, so I got one Saturday morning and 13 off. Right, okay. Um, and, <laughs> so you move them around, I see. Yeah, yeah. and then Saturday afternoon I might be opening a fate or doing something else or I might be afternoon off. That was, yeah. that was kind of it. And then is Sunday sort of designated as the the weekend then? And the I mean the rest. Of, I presume you're doing other things alongside that as well. And well, I have a radio show on Sunday mornings. Sundays and whatever. But. So I, I do a radio show on Sunday morning. So that was a commitment. I tried not to do parliamentary stuff um, on a Sunday because that was the one day which you could try and keep clear. Yeah. I mean, clearly if something major was happening, um, yeah, you'd have to do it. Yeah. Uh, but by and large, try and keep it clear. Hmm. And I guess a lot of people, you know, listening to this who can clock off on a on a Friday evening and then go back into work on a Monday. I mean, you, they might be looking at emails, they might be thinking about work in some way. But you know, to have those Saturday 
Saturday morning surgeries, and I'd imagine some of the stuff that constituents are, are bringing to you on a Saturday morning are either very stressful or a bit dull. And like, so I can't imagine that's the most varied part of the week. I'd imagine it's always quite a similar sort of experience on those Saturday mornings. Well, you were then, wrong, actually, because every, every really? constituent had a, a different tissue. I've heard lots of MPs say it's kind of like it's lots of stuff about bins and... <laughs> I it's not, I mean, there, are, there are some things which recur, but actually I find casework very satisfying because mm. if someone comes to their MP and makes trouble to come and see you, generally it's because they feel very strongly about an issue. Right. Or they're being... It may not be very important in the big scheme of things. I mean, maybe they've got to speak with their neighbour about a fence. And you think, well, that's not very important. But because we've come to see you about it, it clearly is important to them. Mm. Um, and therefore, I think the duty upon me was to try and deal with that sensibly. And I, I used to get good results for constituents, mainly by forcing bureaucrats who didn't want to listen to address a proper issue, <laughs> uh, address an issue properly. And people were very grateful. So it was very satisfying to get the right results and then yeah. to be thanked for it. So I liked that uh, part of my job. So I didn't mind Saturday mornings um, in that sense, the surgery side. But what it does annoy me is when people say, oh, people who don't understand what MPs do, but nevertheless feel able to pontificate about it, uh, with its, in, in some sort of certain knowledge that they're right, without, when they're completely wrong. Mm. You know, i.e., oh, MPs only work 25 weeks a year because they're right, a yeah, yeah. holiday. I mean, well, I, I never had more than two weeks holiday in 13, 18 years. Yeah. I probably had one week holiday a year in 18, in 18 years. You know, but also the obligation to be, you know, doing the surgeries on a on a Saturday morning, probably doing a, a fate or something in the afternoon. I'd imagine some of those things. I mean, you must get invited to some really interesting stuff as well. But I mean, do you still feel when you're doing those kind of things, even though it's the weekend, and even though perhaps you know you're being looked after well when you're there and, and meeting interesting people or whatever, does it still feel like okay, so? I've got this one day tomorrow of Sunday and then I'm kind of back to work on the Monday. It's kind of a different weekend uh, kind of structure to what most people would have as well, isn't it? It's a very different structure and it all just kind of seamlessly fed through and you still get phone calls from newspapers until on a Sunday. It didn't stop really. Mm. Um, so it was probably 65, 70 hours a week. Uh, it was, look, it was a great job. I loved it. Yeah. So I'm not complaining about it. Yeah. But I do complain about people who slag MPs off without understanding what they do. Yeah, yeah, completely. And I've, I've, you know, met and worked with a few different MPs, at, at, you know, over different sort of parts of my career as well. And uh, yeah, like it's, it's always been one of those things that uh, I've always been very, actually just very taken by the, uh, you know, just the, just the dedication that, that most MPs actually are putting to their work behind the scenes that, you know, is, is not necessarily getting recognised or not necessarily kind of getting seen. No. Um, in terms of that, you know, 60, 70 hours a week, Saturday, Sundays, the idea of switching off, how, how did you in, in that role and then in your ministerial role, how, how did you switch off? And well, look, I, I think a lot of MPs aren't very good at switching off. Um, and indeed, I would say, that's well, controversial, I don't know that some people like becoming MPs because it's easier to deal with that situation, to deal with your personal life. I mean, people, mm. people sometimes find it less stressful to deal with work than to deal with stuff at home. And I think there's a lot of MPs, possibly including me, who've, who have fallen in that category. Um, so um, it does become quite seamless, and in a way, keeping keeping busy is a quite a good way of getting through life, isn't it? So it's almost like it becomes a dis the work the work because it's satisfying because you're enjoying it. It becomes just one giant distraction from life and home and everything else. Is that is that what you mean? I think. It, excuse me. I think it helps you to. 
distraction is that, is that the right word? Perhaps distraction is the right word. Um, I think it it can be very rewarding. You can get things done you believe in. You can achieve good results. And therefore there's a temptation to spend time doing things which are rewarding and get good results rather than necessarily painting the spare room, you know. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that I'm, I'm sure everyone has a version of that in terms of, uh, you know, uh, students doing the cleaning, cleaning up of their bedrooms so that they can avoid the uh, academic work and probably vice versa at different times as well, right? So back to Norman Baker in a few moments time. And before we do that, I just wanted to tell you that this month's Think Productive Monthly Tips email is on the theme of work-life balance and um, Hannah who does the newsletter has done a really good job of uh, just bringing together some really interesting content on the subject of work-life balance. Um, the monthly tips newsletter that we send out is it, it's kind of like a, a combination of stuff that's been on the Think Productive blog and then stuff that's just been on the rest of the internet and just all around a key theme so we'll do you know themes such as you know we'll do some of the, the ninja, ninja characteristic themes from my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And we'll also do, just do, you know, more more sort of random themes, if you like, as well. So this month's theme is work-life balance. And as you can imagine, Beyond Busy gets a good mention in there. Uh, but some, also some just really good other stuff in there. So if you are not subscribed to Think Productive's monthly tips email, uh, just go to thinkproductive.co.uk and you'll find a subscribe button and you can press that and then you, you can subscribe and get our emails once a month. So uh, the idea is not to make it too salesy and to make it really useful content. So if that is of interest to you, uh, please go and subscribe. Um, and if you don't know what Think Productive is, so that's my business that uh, I founded back in 2009. And we work with a whole range of different companies. It's all about trying to replace that stress and overwhelm that people feel in, the, in their working days and working lives with a playful, productive momentum. So we do things like getting your email inboxes to zero, uh, making meetings magic, and a full day thing called Stress Less Achieve More, which is basically a kind of uh, tour through some of the uh, the more detailed bits of my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, and actually implementing stuff on the day. So we have this approach that is uh, part theoretical, but also part very, very practical. So really what, um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the feedback is what, what stands us out from other courses that you've been on is it's not like you get to the end of the day and then you have a nice workbook and, and twice as much stuff to do. It's like by the end of the day, things have actually changed and um, you know we really work with people in the room. So if that sounds at all of interest, if you have a team of people that you feel like could be more productive or interested in being less stressed in the way that you work, uh, drop us a line. It's um, just thinkproductive.co.uk. Uh, if you go there, there's a little contact form on there. Uh, and likewise, if you just want to email me directly, it's graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. Uh, I've said this a couple of times on the podcast before, but if you're listening to this for the first time, if you have either interesting thoughts on the topics of productivity, work-life balance, and defining happiness and success, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you have perspectives about particular people who you think would be really good guests for the show as well, uh, just drop me a line, graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. So back to Norma Baker, and this is part two of our, our conversation uh, back in Laporte's cafe in the uh, little shed out the back there uh, on a very beautiful uh, summer's afternoon. I uh, really uh, had a great time talking to Norman, and there's some really, um, really great conversations I had with him 
uh, just sort of on the train and just kind of uh, we, we got the train back to Brighton together and things that I probably couldn't put in the podcast and uh, you know really I should uh, uh, get clearance to talk about such things so I won't but um, really really fascinating guy very candid very open and uh, as I'm sure you'll agree here uh, just has some really interesting perspectives on these topics so uh, without further ado here's part two of my interview with Norman Baker so in terms of some of those um, battles that you that you fought you're also sort of the person who coined the two jags thing of John Prescott yes. right um, and uh, probably most notoriously the uh, expenses uh, scandal and then also your views on the Iraq war yes um, I mean those were big things in terms of uh, just you putting yourself out there and like did you need to be someone who is very thick-skinned to be able to to do that like I'm not sure I needed to be quite as 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 brutally forefrontal sometimes as I was I think I think think I'd be slightly more measured if I did everything again I wouldn't I wouldn't shy away from the issues but I think I might be slightly more controlled in my language than perhaps I was in those days when I was very well, younger and keener and uh, mm. you know, fresher and everything else. Um, I don't mind making enemies of powerful people because I think they're the ones who need to be taken down a peg or two. So, you know, people like Cameron, Blair, Prescott, they all hate me, you know. Right. Um, but, you know, that, my constituents didn't. And yeah. that's the right way around. So, obviously, you know, breaking that expensive scandal story, uh, you are on the one hand, doing a massive service to your constituents as, as, as you see it and, and as you know, you're doing a massive service to, to taxpayers by exposing what their money gets spent on. Um, but you also are doing that disservice to not just those powerful people that you just described, but also to your profession. So you say in the book that now more than ever, politician is a dirty word. So was that... Did you feel conflicted about that in the sense of, you know, this is a profession that you love, it's something that you really believe in, and yet it has this sort of curious effect of turning, you know, t- turning the profession into, into something where the reputation is, is not necessarily as, as good as it should mm. be. It does worry me that the reputation of MPs is now, or of parliamentarians generally, is now um, <coughs> lower than it was. And undoubtedly the exposure of MPs' expenses has contributed towards that. And that's not healthy in a democracy. On the other hand, um, if you've got abuse of power going on and people, frankly, are ripping off a taxpayer, then you can't let that survive. I mean, yeah. and, and I think you have to you have to expose that, and then you build up from from more solid foundations. I mean, mm. the, the, the foundations before were on sand. We've cleared away the building, and there's a chance now you can build something better. Do you think that's the case? Do you think you have cleared that away? I mean, do you think there's still are there other potential things like that in the, you know, like in the shadows or in in the closet, not yet exposed? And well, I think I think that the empty um, Spencer thing is cleared away by and large, and the system's now better. I'm not sure it saves any money, by the way, because Ipsos quite expensive to run, and the organisation that uh, has replaced the House of Commons organisation itself. But it's still a lot cleaner, yeah. and and I think that's important. Of course, there are things to sort out. Lobbying needs to be sorted out, for example, mm. um, which Cameron said he was going to do. Of course, never did. Well, there's quite a long list of those isn't yeah. there? <laughs> things that Cameron said he would do and, and never did. Um, I'm just interested in something you said earlier about compromise being a really important part of, of political life, and 
you obviously went into coalition as a Liberal Democrat with the Conservatives, and there's a couple of really interesting things. You said you said that uh, the Tories knew more about gov- uh, about government than the Lib Dems did, and they knew more about the systems of how yes. to make that work. So. In the in the first year of that, obviously you're you're sat there feeling like, hang on, we're supposed to be in this as a team, but like these guys really know the system better than we do, and and how to sort of operate that. And you also said that you spent your life fighting the Conservatives. Yes. And then of course you had to work with them. So I was just wondering what that you know how that made you feel, what your approach was to that, and just you know, like how, how you dealt with that kind of internally, if, if, if you sort of mean in terms of just your, your thoughts around it. <clears throat> I think that the, um, the coalition was necessary, and I'll go into why that's the case in the book. Um, and it had to be with the Tories because it wasn't the arithmetic with Labour, and if we hadn't had a coalition, it would have been a Tory-only government, which would have had another election and got a majority. And we had a chance to exercise some power, and people would have said if we didn't take it, you know, what on earth... Have you have you voted for you for you've been asking for this for years, you've not done it. So you know the, the idea of going to coalition with the Tories, I think was the right thing to do, and um, of course it involved compromise. But compromise is involved in being in your own party. I mean, mm. look at Labour Party now. Um, you know, there are wide variations of views. The Tory Party look at the views on Europe. You have to compromise with your own colleagues actually, because um, a party is it's just a one big compromise yeah. in itself. And a coalition is simply a bigger compromise with somebody else outside. I think the coalition worked quite well. I mean, I, uh, in terms of in terms of uh, uh, my approach, it was to say, okay, we're going to do a deal with you. Uh, we've 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 sat down, negotiated a coalition agreement. Um, there are certain rules to be followed, and we'll follow them. You follow them, and actually, by and large, both sides did follow the rules. And the coalition lasted five years, which nobody thought it would do. Now, it's not to say you don't bend the rules to your advantage, because right. you, know, you yeah. do. I mean, the Tories did, and I suppose we did. And we were always looking to see how we could get um, a bit more leverage for ourselves. And so did the Tories. I mean, uh, but that's human nature. But we, we both stuck to the rules, really, mm. uh, on nearly every occasion. So that was, was kind of fine. You know, doing a deal with the Tories, the way I saw it, was the Tories are... You know, business orientated, so they wanted to buy some double glazing, uh, and the only people selling double glazing were Lib Dems, so they had to deal with us. Uh, they may not wanted to deal with us, they may not like the double glazing salesman, but they wanted double glazing, they signed a contract and paid for it, and uh, they can go and talk about how awful we are afterwards, but they, they kept the contract. Mm. Similarly, we don't want to really sell it to the Tories because they're nasty bit of work, but nobody else is buying it, so we have to sell it to them. So, you know, I think I think there was a kind of realistic understanding that we had to do business together. Now, you know, of course that meant, as part of the compromise, that we ended up voting for things we didn't agree with. Yeah. Uh, which is painful, particularly in tuition fees. Um, and some things we didn't handle very well, like tuition fees. But, you know, what people forget is that there were numerous occasions when there were hundreds of Tory MPs going through the lobbies voting for stuff they didn't believe in yeah. to get our policies through. Because there was some... Some of the things where you talk about how, I mean, like it. I mean, it's, it just strikes me from, from you know, just looking at some of those those particular career highlights of yours. That you know, integrity is a big thing to you, and the idea of being true to yourself and 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 really going along with that authenticity is is a big thing for you. And so, 
when you're, you know, when you're standing up in Parliament and uh, speaking, or you're in the voting lobby voting, or if you're on Newsnight or some other TV show arguing for something that you don't believe in, I mean, well, how, like, how how does that make you feel? Because you have you have to do that sometimes, right, in terms of compromise. And one of the things the Lib Dems didn't do very well was to make it plain to the public at large what the deal was. So rather than pretending we agreed with the policy, um, which we didn't, we should have said, we're in a coalition of the Tories, they wanted this in particular, Yeah. we've agreed to it because we got this in return. And we should say what was happening. We don't agree with marriage. With the one, with the one, one time we did do it, was we said, um, the Tories wanted married couple tax allowance back, so we've got free school meals for kids. That was a direct deal right, on, on okay. that issue. Yeah. We should have done more of that to explain what we were doing and why we were voting for some things and not others. I mean, is that how that was done in the negotiations? Yes, yeah, exactly exactly like, we want done. this, okay, well, you know, yeah, we'll swap that, you this. Exactly and, that was done yeah. on that way. Were there lots of other things that happened in that way? Yes, um, yeah. quite a lot. I mean, sometimes it was a package rather than a straight one or one right. another. But yes, it happened all the time. I mean, that's, that's, how it, that's how it operated. So we should have been clearer about that. I mean, I don't, I don't think I stood up and said, in, in normal time as a minister, I think this is the right policy, when I didn't think it was the right policy. What I would say, for those who are able to distinguish, you might say this isn't very effective, but I would say things like, the coalition position is this. Right, OK. Um, yeah. Or I would say, the Prime Minister has made it very plain that he thinks that. Um, you know, I would do that. So it's um, about the collective responsibility in that yeah, sense rather than... but I wouldn't say, I don't think I ever said, I think this is the right policy or I didn't think it was the right policy. I would yeah. say the coalition policy is this. Um, so that's how I got around it personally. Mm. Whether anyone noticed or not, I doubt, but... Uh, <laughs> you said with tuition fees that it was the one decision that you thought about resigning over. Yes. Um, what were the conversations that you were having, you know, with Nick Clegg and with others around that time on that? Well, the thing was completely mishandled. Um, it wasn't, by the way, what people say it was, it wasn't the Lib Dems being dishonest and lying. It was the Lib Dems promising something in a manifesto which they then couldn't deliver. I mean, we've been promising stuff in manifestos for decades without any prospect of delivering it, so <laughs> suddenly we were in a position to deliver things. But the reality was that both Labour and Tory wanted to put tuition fees up, um, so we had no, nobody to negotiate with on that, and we were out on a limb. So, again, we didn't handle it very well at all. But because we'd all signed this pledge, in retrospect, clearly, we should not have voted for it. We should have said to the Tories, this is a red line, we can't do it. Mm. But we didn't, so that was a misjudgment on our part. But it wasn't a dishonest misjudgment, it was an incompetent misjudgment, if you like. Was um, there, you know, were there offers made of, uh, OK, we'll... We'll give you the tuition fee thing, but this is what we want in return. No, I don't think it wasn't that. Were, case. were there I mean, any options around that? At the I time? don't think so, but I wasn't heavily involved in the, the, the nitty gritty of it. I, but I do know that at the beginning of the, the uh, coalition negotiations, um, when the agreement was put together, that we secured um, a right to abstain, which is what we negotiated. Well, we actually secured a right to, be, to have an effect of plus or minus zero on the vote. Now, as soon as some of our colleagues said, well, I've got a pledge, I'm going to vote against it, then mm. in order to keep the coalition right. pledge, yeah. some of us had to vote for it to keep it plus or minus zero. So we ended up looking divided and uh, it was a complete mess. But in terms of negotiations and discussions, I mean, I had a discussion with Nick, two discussions with Nick Clegg, because um, I was the one who I think was most likely to resign over it. 
Um, and he was, you know, as you would expect, putting pressure on because he said, you know, this is not a good thing, you know, it'll look terrible, so you'd resign, etc., etc. Yeah. So there's the effect on the party to think about as well. And the irony was he wasn't a big fan of the Jewish no. thing either, right? He wasn't, like he he wasn't was, he was against it in opposition yeah. for very good practical reasons, actually. So, but he was having to deal with the situation. And also, you know, my appointment had been... Um, something of a controversial one with some journalists who thought I was too maverick to be in government. Uh, actually, I think I did government rather well, to say so myself. But um, that was their view. And they said right at the beginning, oh, well, he'll be the first one to go. Well, I would have been the first one to go if I'd resigned over tuition fees. It was early in the mm. Parliament. I didn't want to prove them right. So there are all those sorts of <laughs> factors to, yeah. to bear in mind. Plus the fact, I actually think I achieved far more in my time as a minister than I did in 13 years in opposition. And all the things I did achieve subsequent to the tuition fees, but I wouldn't have got done. So, you know, there, there was sorts of calculations to be made. None of it was very clean, but it's all there. Mm. Do you think what happened with the coalition and particularly that experience around tuition fees, so the Lib Dems promised something that they perhaps, you know, you're in that mindset of we can promise things because we're never going to be the, the full on, like full majority government, even if we end up in a coalition. So we'll promise that anyway. Do you think that experience changed the way in the next election in 2015, how, how all the parties sort of approached their manifesto? So it sort of seemed to me like there were the promises that were going to win you votes, but there were also a whole lot of promises that it was like, well, this might win us some votes, but we have no intention of ever needing to. And, and, and the one that really struck me uh, more recently was, do you think that's what David Cameron was doing with the EU referendum? Like, do you think he thought we're not going to be in majority government as the Conservatives, so we can promise the EU referendum and then we can ditch it further down the line. Like, do you think that was perhaps part of his thinking? There's a whole lot of questions there. First of all, yes, the, um, there was an element of the Lib Dems putting stuff in the manifesto that it wouldn't be delivered because it was, it was aspirational and belief-orientated. Mm. Secondly, the, the, the Lib Dem conference makes policy, unlike other two parties who make their own policies somewhere in a smoke-filled room. Smoke room. We actually have policy made by the conference floor, sometimes against the wishes of the party leadership. And indeed, tuition fees is the case in point because Nick Claude didn't want it. So uh, that was forced on us by the, by the conference, uh, that particular issue. Um, then you have a situation that, um, uh, yes, the language did change in 2015, I think, because people realised that um, there were, you know, it was potential dangers from, from um, having language which was undeliverable. But actually, you know, what people didn't think about was that the Tories had a whole lot of promises which they couldn't deliver either. I mean, inheritance tax, for example, was a key thing that Osborne had. And we just said we weren't doing it. So that never happened. But, you know, they didn't get the same opprobrium heaped on their head as we got for tuition fees. But, mm. <coughs> you know, if you want to describe it that way, they brought lots of promises too. Yeah. I don't call it that. They just compromised. But, I mean, that's what could be called, breaking promises. Mm. In terms of the EU vote, no, I, I think Cameron... We, we were signed up to an EU referendum, um, probably wrongly. You did sign up to it? Yeah, for yeah. ages ago. I mean, yeah. but, but for us, it was a get-out-of-jail card because we were pro-EU. And we and we wanted to recognise a public disquiet. So we said, well, we were one of the first people to say we should have a referendum, actually. Um, um, thinking probably wouldn't happen, but it was a good get-out-of-jail card at the time. And then, I suppose, thinking that even if there was one, we'd win it. So that, that wasn't Cameron's thinking. I mean, where Cameron got it totally wrong, and I go, there's a whole chapter in Europe in the book, 
um, was that he failed in 2010 to take on um, the lunatics on the Eurosceptic wing. You know, Blair took on Clause 4, and that was a kind of shibboleth thing uh, for, for him in, at the beginning. Cameron should have done the same thing, because Cameron in opposition said, we've got to stop banging on about Europe. He understood the problem, yeah, but then failed to deal with it. And, so, and the Blair Clause 4 thing, in terms of a lesson of leadership, was let's grip something that's really hard and exert my authority very early on in yes. my leadership. And that's what Blair did yes, and very really well hard, with but, that, that um, issue, you know, whatever your politics of that are. It was totemic. Cameron, Cameron didn't do that. Yeah, it was a... Totemic rather than hard, yeah. I think. But um, Cameron didn't do it. Cameron should have done it. Cameron should have picked a fight with people like Bill Cash mm. uh, in the party. And um, he'd have lost one or two. He would have won any vote massively with the Lib Dems there as well. Um, he should have, one or two could have gone to you. Could have said, okay, sold off. Now who's next? And they would have all cowered away. Instead, he gave in, you know, time after time, the red lines were moved back in, you know. And we said to him, you know, you're wasting your time. These guys will not be happy till we've left Europe. That's what they want. They will not turn around at some point and say, OK, we've got a compromise, we'll settle for that. They won't settle for that. They won't settle for anything until we've left. So why give them ground? Mm. But he, he completely miscalculated that. I think he will go down as, um, as someone who threw away our links with Europe and almost threw away our links with Scotland. In fact, we probably have to throw away our links with Scotland because I'll go independent now, I, I suspect. Mm. I, my next question was going to be, how do you feel about the Brexit thing? No, I kind of feel like you've just answered that in that last couple of sentences. Well, I think it's a disaster. <laughs> uh, I think it's a disaster. And I think it also, what worries me is you've got, and I can say it's probably easier now, I'm not an MP, but th there's a certain tendency in the electorate which is to act like children. Um, you know, the, the ability to, or, not, or the willingness, not the ability, the willingness to listen to an argument intellectually and make up your own mind about it, has diminished, and there's far too many people want to throw stones at people, throw toys out of prams, mm. um, and, and not really worry about the truth of the matter. You see it with America now and, and Trump. I mean, Trump's been exposed time after time for a whole lot of lies and insults, but people still want to vote for him. It's not because they haven't heard those things, it's because they don't really care, because they're behaving like children. Um, and there's an element of that in the Brexit vote. Not to say that there isn't a case for leaving Europe. I mean, there are some people who have got an intellectually very strong case for coming out, I don't happen to agree with it, but who've always had that view and have put it forward and there's an intellectual rigour behind it. You know, people like John Redwood, I mean, I've got, you know, got a strong case. But a whole lot of people just kind of want to hit somebody, you know, yeah. hit Cameron or hit, hit the establishment or hit someone else, you know, for the sake of it. Not for any good reason, but just for the sake of it. But is it, is it, is it for the sake of it or is it more, you know, people just feel disenfranchised or disconnected from the mainstream... It, it kind of feels like there's a big anti-mainstream thing at the moment, right? Like, that's what's happening yeah, with is. Trump and yeah. Bernie Sanders in the States, Corbyn here. Like, it feels like it's a yeah. very... It's it's part of the mood of 2014 to now. Like, it kind of feels like the last two, three years that's been developing. Yes, there is an anti-mainstream um, mood. That's quite right. But people think about what the consequences are. I mean, mm. the consequence of Brexit is to damage this country. Yeah. The consequence of voting for Jeremy Corbyn uh, and I'm nothing against Jeremy personally, is to, is to split the Labour Party and leave the Tories in power for uh, endless years. The consequence of people feeling good about voting Labour and Green in this constituency in the last election to vote a Tory MP. The consequence of voting for Trump to, to bash somebody else is to get an idiot in, in a White House. You know, people to think through these things. Mm. So, yes, let's be anti 
um, whatever's going on that people don't agree with. And then, yes, they have become disconnected. And yes, the gap between the rich and the poor has got bigger and all sorts of things. But they have to approach it in a way that actually achieves something rather than simply just makes a kind of statement of throwing toys out of pram. Yeah. Think about what the consequences of the actions are. So it feels like, particularly in the last in the last few months, you know, since since that Brexit vote, and I mean, there was there was that period of about three days where it was just like there was about five years worth of news happened in about three yeah. days. It was I I got to the end of it. I was like, I'm just exhausted by the news. This yeah. is too much. News. I mean, that's a seismic period of history in terms of politics, and you're you're sitting on the outside of that now. Were there any times during that where you're like, I'm quite enjoying having some extra time and doing more music and and having having more time at, at home and everything else? But were you thinking, get me back in there? I'd love to be in there right no, now. No, like, I, I, I didn't want to be the there. I didn't want to be in there. Um, I've mentally moved away. I moved away on the night of the election and I made that speech saying mm. I'm not standing again. I then wrote my book very quickly in nine nine weeks, I think it was, start to finish, and that for me was partly a cathartic experience just to kind of bring all my thoughts together and, and shut the door on it really yeah. so I didn't want to go back at the Brexit time what I would say was that I was profoundly more unhappy with the Brexit vote than I was by losing my own seat I, mm. the general election didn't bother me really yeah. the Brexit vote did yeah and when you th- that's quite an interesting statement given that you know obviously part of that is your whole career is about to change you've got presumably a whole load of other people around the country who are losing their jobs at the same time and, yeah. and everything else. Um, and to, yeah, to then say that a vote that you weren't part of is is a bigger thing. I mean, is that just the, as, as you see it, the weight of the consequence of, of that? I think so. Of, I mean, I think it's all, well, it's a couple of things. First of all, it's, it's the, um, it's the um, fact that you can change a government in five years and even, you know, the worst government can't do that much damage in five years, although uh, this one's doing its best to try and put me wrong. <laughs> Um, uh, but the, the consequence of Brexit is, is for 50 years and I'm, I was very angry I was angry with the lies that came out from Boris Johnson the, the opportunism from Boris Johnson mm. the lies from all the people like you know, the NHS that, that money approach for the NHS you know a day later Farage oh that's a mistake it wasn't a mistake it was a lie you know so all those things were dishonest then I got very angry with the elder generation because you know people of 75 and 80 who want to turn the clock back to 1954 you know, they've had their lives. They should be listening. They should have been listening to young people who nearly all wanted to stay in Europe. Mm. They should have been voting for them. They should have been thinking about those people rather than selfishly voting for something which is gone. Yeah. So I was very annoyed on a whole range of fronts, actually, on that vote. Mm. And do you feel uh, temptation to go back to campaigning and to be involved in that? I mean, you know, like... It, I don't think you should Does go- that anger get kind of channeled into stuff? Well, it gets channeled into uh, talking to you, I suppose. <laughs> um, it gets channeled into uh, I don't know. I, I do a couple of Facebook postings. I mean, I don't really. I think once once you leave, once a curtain falls, you leave the stage, mm. and you should you, you should not go back in life. When you've yeah. done something and it's finished, you go on to something else, and I really feel that quite strongly. Which isn't to say there are other other on other avenues. It may be that, for example, I do columns for newspapers. And you can express things that way. Um, having moved, having taken on the British government, I'm now taking on the Chinese government uh, in my capacity as president of the Bet Society. So there are challenges which are there about things I care about, which are different. Hmm. But no, I don't think you should ever go back and do the same thing again. 
Um, just want to ask you a couple of questions before we finish. So, um, obviously, the the new Prime Minister is Theresa May. Yes. Someone you know quite well. Yes. <laughs> uh, and when I know, you... I know the present Chancellor quite well as well, because he was a Transport Secretary of May. Of course, yeah. And so when you uh, resigned as a minister in Theresa May's department, you said it was because you wanted a rest. Was, was that true? Was it a rest from ministerial life, or was it, was it a rest from Theresa May? It was... It was um... I think it was a whole range of things, actually. It was a whole range of things which came together. But I felt that I'd... Um, I knew we wouldn't be in government after 2015, whatever happened. I knew we'd lose some seats. And I knew that even if there was a hung parliament, my party wouldn't wear another coalition. And therefore, my ministerial life was going to end in May 2015, if, you know, at the latest. And I'd achieved, really, what I thought I could achieve at the Home Office um, in, in, in my year and a bit there. And in fact, I left kind of forward plans for the officials who were by and large good people to take forward to the election. So I was reasonably confident it would make no difference whether I was there or not. Um, that was one thing. The second thing was that, um, and the most, the most important milestone was I got the drugs report out, which um, written my civil servants, which demonstrated that the government's drugs policy didn't work, frankly, um, and that increasing penalties actually didn't reduce drug use. Um, and there was a different approach which Portugal and others were pursuing, uh, decriminalising drugs, which has proved more effective at reducing drug use. So we got that out um, in the teeth of opposition from the Home Secretary, forced it out. Mm. So having got that out, um, that was a major thing which I wanted to achieve and then everything else was, was um, stuff which is either non-controversial, which I was reasonably confident would happen anyway. So that was one element. But I was, I was a bit tired um, by that point. And I was tired because the Home Office is a building that goes from the, the one end of um, um, uh, Marsham Street to the other. Yeah. It's a huge building. Um, it takes about seven minutes to walk along it uh, outside. They used to have quite a lot of meetings in there. It takes about 20 minutes to get in as well. It does. It goes through all those scanners and all those Indeed. And, and the point is that, that in this huge building, I was the only Lib Dem. You know, there were Tory ministers and Tory official advisors and Tory lords. I was the only Lib Dem. And at the Department for Transport, that hadn't mattered because there was a degree of commonality in terms of purpose with the three secretaries of state I served under. Um, there were... Um, friendly Tory special advisers who, uh, like Julian Glover, were not particularly political, but um, were ha quite happy to, to work with you. Um, and there was a, a degree of civility, and that was totally different to the Home Office across the road. And the Home Office, every single yard, like the First World War, every single yard had to be fought for. It's trench warfare. Nothing was given. Everything had to be fought for. Everything went to battle. Mm. I didn't mind the battle. I was put there because of the battle, because Nick Clegg said you have to, we had to make some progress. And uh, frankly, without being battering un... realm. yes, but that being unkind, my previous colleagues I hadn't made the progress. So that's why I was put in there as Minister of State to do that. Well, I mean, three and a half years into the coalition, um, the the honeymoon had worn off anyway. It, had it ever been there in the Home Office, I've no idea. Um, and it was, you know, Theresa May was out there to try and stop me having influence for the as a Tory, and I was out there to try and make sure I got things done. So that kind of antagonistic battle, antagonistic in terms of politics, not particularly on a personal level, by the mm. way, but antagonistic in terms of, uh, of a political battle, was every day. 
And every day there were hurdles to overcome. Every day there were manoeuvres to try and work out how to get things done, which hadn't been necessary at the Department of Transport. And after a year of that, as you only lived in the department, having got quite a lot through against the Home Secretary's wishes uh, by all sorts of different um, mechanisms, as I described in the book, yeah, I just thought, I don't, you know, I don't want to do any more of this, mm. and I've, I've achieved what I can achieve here. Uh, and you said that so, not, anti- on, not anta- antagonistic as on a personal level, but then antagonistic with the manoeuvres and the briefing against you and well, all those kind of things. The, the, briefing, the briefing came from the special advisors, yeah. and she said she knew nothing about it. Well, right. you know, maybe she did, maybe she didn't. But would she make those manoeuvres, and then you would, you know, sort of pass her in the corridor and she'd be really friendly? And No, know, I mean, not, I mean, not particularly. She's always... She was quite cold. I mean, she was quite cold to the Tories. I mean, right. she wasn't. She wasn't very warm to anybody. I, mean, I think she's shy, actually. Uh, you think she's shy? I think she's shy. Mm. Partly, partly that's the explanation for it. Uh, she's very competent, uh, and she was a, a an effective Home Secretary. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to, you know, say anything other than that. I mean, in a sense, I admired her, and she and I had commonality on some issues where we worked very well together. For example, on violence against women, which is quite radical. And child sexual exploitation, which is part of my portfolio, a horrible bit of it. Um, and she and I are on the same page on that. So mm. there were areas, and alcohol, where she and I took on Cameron at number 10. Yeah. Um, so there were areas we worked together quite well. So, but, I mean, she was hard as nails, and she didn't want to get, if she, didn't, if she believed in something, she didn't want to give any ground. I mean, she you had to fight for everything. Whereas over at the Department of Transport, Patrick McLaughlin, bless him, he just said to him, oh, come on, Patrick, are you for strong? He said, all right, let it go. He's like, you do it, <laughs> right, you know, yeah. ultimately, if you didn't push it too far. Yeah. A um, couple of final things. What's your biggest, what's your biggest regret from uh, your time and what's the thing you're most proud of? Um, what's my biggest regret? Um, I don't know. I think if I could have got involved in tuition fees thing personally more earlier on, uh, tried to steer the Dems a different direction, it would have been beneficial for me and for the party. I think that's probably, that's a kind of party regret rather than anything else. Mm. Have I got a personal regret? Um, I think I, I think I, I should have moderated my language a bit more in the early days. Um, and I'm surprised to hear you say that, like just from a sort of someone who takes pride in being the battering ram and the maverick and I think, the, I don't the want confrontational a, guy. I don't want to be the battering ram and the maverick. I mean, what I think sometimes I would on occasion, not very often, but I sometimes rush to judgment on people when right, I can get the full facts, mm. and that wasn't right. Um, so, and sometimes, not very often, I'm being very personally critical here because you asked me to be, but occasionally I think I would um, uh, take the opportunity for a, for a quote in the papers without really knowing the facts, mm. right. and that wasn't right. So I think I would not do that again. In fact, I stopped doing that um, <laughs> reasonably early on, but in my early days I did, did that. Um, my biggest achievement? Well, I don't know. I think I've had quite a lot, um, to be honest with you. Getting rid of Mandelson, getting a drugs report through the Home Office, have, introducing the local sustainable transport fund of the Department of Transport, which was a game changer. Um, got a huge amount of money for um, walking, cycling. The biggest rail investment program since since uh, Victorian times, which I largely helped achieve. Um, record investment in buses. Um, any wheel clamping, which is a, something mm. I forced through. So I've I've got uh, lots of things I achieved. That's that's in ministerial terms. I mean, I like to think down here. I've I've been a good constituency MP and I've helped lots of individual people, and that's important to me. 
Absolutely, and uh, I I've been a victim of that wheel clamping thing. So uh, so, so thanks, Donald. Uh, final question: I had I had to finish with a productivity tip, and uh, one of the things you describe in your book is going into do news night with Jeremy Paxman talking about hydrogen, the hydrogen economy, <laughs> and you didn't have time to do any prep. So basically, you're on Paxman blagging it, right? And so I think the whole thing about fake it till you make it, and just if you look like you know what you're doing, it'll be all right. So what are your tips for sort of blagging Paxman and making that okay? Well, that worked because not only did I know what, what I was talking about, but neither did the Labour Minister I was on with, <laughs> and neither did Paxman. And it was my wife, who did know about it, actually, watched it, and so it was incredibly funny because there were three men on screen, <laughs> none of whom knew what they were talking about for about ten minutes. Um, so that was, that was quite funny. Um, I, I, I how think, often do you think, do you watch Newsnight and think, how often do you think those three men don't, don't know what they're talking about? I don't think people blag it as much as I blagged it. I, mean, <laughs> I think I blagged it more than most. Um, and I think you develop techniques for doing so. I remember once um, uh, I was in a committee, uh, I forgot what the bill was, some energy bill I think it was or something, and um, there'd been an amendment put down in the Lib Dem name. Um, and the way we put these amendments down is all the Lib Dems in the committee would sign this I remember there were only two of us in the committee at that point. And we'd arranged it that my colleague, whoever it was, was going to move that amendment. Well, he wasn't in the room. So I got called to move his amendment. I knew nothing about it or what it did or anything. I had no idea. So I managed to speak for about 90 seconds or two minutes on this amendment, saying, well, the Minister will understand that this is not a very controversial amendment. Um, it's very clear from the words what we're trying to do. And I spoke for two minutes. No one, no one knew that I knew nothing about this amendment except me. <laughs> <laughs> So it's just that whole thing of uh, so you, you talk around the the formality and the process and everything else. I like and you the don't challenge. Need to get into the substance of it. I like the challenge. I mean, one of the first things I ever did was turn up at a, term, uh, a meeting in New Haven after I was elected, and there was this. I thought I was meeting the committee of this this uh, charity. I forgot who it was now, and I would sit there and they would tell me what their issues were, and I say, "I'll go and take, take some action for you." And I know it was my fault or their fault or my office's fault, but anyway, I got down there. And I opened the door and there's about 100 people there on a raised platform. And the man on the platform, woman on the platform said, uh, Ah, Mr. Baker's now arrived. Mr. Baker will now speak for 20 minutes on whatever it was. Um, and I had to go and do that for 20 minutes on a subject I knew nothing about. So it's kind of worse than just a minute, really. Just 20 minutes. Um, so is that something that you, do you feel like you'd just learnt that as you went along? Or do you I think, think you've always had a, it. A, a, an innate ability it. to yeah. just think on your feet and. And, I like the challenge. Uh, do it on the spot. Kind of. I, that's part of what drives me. I like the challenge. Maybe that's why I've done some of these things with band or something else. I like the challenge. Mm. I like going places where other people daren't go. And it goes back to one of the things you said at the beginning about um, you want to make it fun, right? And you, yeah. you got to you do the serious stuff, but then there's one or two things where I'm just going to have a bit of fun with this. You know the, the story movie. in the book about um, John Burt. Right. a minute. John Burt, um, where um, he was employed by. Blair's a blues guy, thinker, so called, produce a whole lot of rubbish. Um, <laughs> and, um, and his office roof fell in, literally. Um, and I think it was Stephen Byers said, uh, well, that should help his blues guy's thinking. <laughs> um, but I wonder where his office was now, where had he gone to? And they wouldn't tell me at number 10 where his, where his office was. So we asked questions, he wouldn't answer it. So I thought, I'm not going to be defeated on this. So I got my researcher to ring up Downing Street, switchboard. I said, uh, Oh, we've got a parcel here for Lord Burt. Where did we deliver it? <laughs> and they told us the address. <laughs> <laughs> we went around there to take a photograph. <laughs> Love so it. kind of fun, you know. Uh, well, it's been really fun chatting and uh, very insightful. So let's just um, uh, just tell people where they can get hold of the book so that you, well, you can 
plug, plug the book, give us the title. Uh, the, the book is uh, called Against the Grain uh, by Norman Baker, in case you don't know who you listen to. <laughs> um, it's published by Biteback, it's in hardback. Uh, it's had some good reviews and it's endorsed on the back by, oh, you better look at your microphone, by Nick Davis, a Guardian journalist, um, uh, Peter Oborn from The Spectators, so left and right, and Nick Clegg, uh, of course, as my former leader. So it's a very good buy, and uh, once you bought that, then do buy my albums by the Reform Club because they're equally good. <laughs> cool, Norman Baker, thank you very much. <laughs> So that's it for Norman Baker, and um, I must say, you know, uh, I interviewed lots of people who have books, but I would really recommend, if you have any interest in politics whatsoever, uh, go and buy Norman's book, Against the Grain. Really fascinating read, and very, very funny as well. Um, so thanks to Norman. Thanks also to Mark Stedman. Mark is the founder of Bloomsbury Digital. Uh, they're based up in Birmingham, and Mark's my producer on the podcast. Uh, so Bloomsbury Digital, they can help you out with... Uh, audio voiceover stuff with website stuff if you're at all interested in podcasts as well uh, drop Mark a line you can find his contact details on uh, the website for this show which is just getbeyondbusy.com getbeyondbusy.com and as I said before uh, my company is Think Productive uh, just thinkproductive.com or thinkproductive.co.uk you can find out more about our workshops and drumroll I now have a personal website that I'm happy to kind of share like I, I had one before but it was terrible so I would, never, I would never mention it but you can find out more about me and stuff that I do personally at graymalcott.com graymalcott.com really pleased with that site now it's uh, just been taking shape over the summer and a shout out to Harry uh, who was interning with me over the summer uh, there's a scheme that we participate in with Sussex University which basically provides like paid internship schemes and um, yeah, Harry was with me over the summer and really helped me out to get that website looking really good. So GrahamAlcott.com, go check it out. Really pleased about that. So um, the next episode will be out in two weeks' time. Uh, in the meantime, you can find show notes and links and everything else at GetBeyondBusy.com. Uh, drop me a line if you would like to, Graham at ThinkProductive.co.uk. And otherwise, I will see you in two weeks' time for episode two of series two of Beyond Busy. And until then, take care.